Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. This week, we jump back in time to explore the 1918 to 1920 influenza pandemic, which devastated the globe, causing over 13,000 deaths in Australia. Many of the restrictions, including on gatherings and borders, were seen implemented in 2020, were last implemented in 1919. What was the 1919 pandemic like for nurses? And how did communities support each other back then? And what has changed compared to today? First in the program, we hear from professional historian Mary Sheehan. What examples are there of history repeating? What were the gendered impacts of the 1919 pandemic? And how did the 1919 pandemic affect employment, including unemployed people's organising? Second, we hear from independent historian Liz Crush. First to Mary Sheehan on the story of a nurse. Mary goes into the harrowing story of trainee nurse Velda Kelly and how she made a friendship with her through the archive. It was a very peculiar feeling when you feel you know somebody very well and it's happened to me a, a number of times um, during uh, the course of my profession. I've shared this experience with a lot of other historians. You research somebody, you feel as you really get to know them and they, they almost come alive for you, even though they've died uh, at least half a century before you came, or probably three quarters of a century, in this case a, a full century before you come across them. Um, I was doing a history of nursing at St Vincent's Hospital uh, which I was very privileged to, to t- be able to take on that role because I'd graduated quite a few years earlier as a nurse and from St Vincent's in Melbourne and then returned um, uh, to study and, and gained my graduate and postgraduate degrees in history. It was a privilege to be able to write this history of nursing at um, St Vincent's. And during the course of my research, I came across one sentence in the annual report within the context of the the annual report providing information about um, the Spanish flu and how the hospital had dealt with it. And there was one concluding sentence and one nurse died. And I felt um, very sorry for this nurse because she'd sacrificed her life and and, um, she didn't even get a name in the annual report. So I started digging, found out her name was Valda Kelly. Um, She 
had started her nursing training in November 1916. While the First World War was um, in full force, uh, and perhaps she was fired by patriotic zeal and urged to contribute to the war effort, and that's why she took on the the her training uh, as a nurse. There were rumours that she had um, been engaged to a soldier overseas who conscripted overseas. Sorry, he wasn't conscripted because conscription, he joined up and was um, shipped overseas to find um, whether there's any truth in that rumour, I'm, I'm not too sure. Anyway, Val was um, nursing during the pandemic. She, her normal hours of, of nursing were real, quite lengthy. Um, she'd it'd be anything from, you know, seven in the morning until Ten at night or something, and um, and it was constant. Uh, by the um, by the time the Spanish flu hit, there, there were far greater demands, and her hours were very much longer. And they had to contend with ambulances being the whole quite regularly, and quite frequently carrying more sick people uh, to be delivered to the hospital. Valda, because she was working such long hours uh, and in such close proximity to the virus, was very vulnerable and she did succumb and uh, after approximately a week's illness, died on the 14th of February. The sad part about Valda's death is that it wasn't an isolated case. At the time of her death, there were... 23 other nurses in the hospital who were um, ill uh, with the virus and then uh, another 39 at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and there were many deaths at the Royal Melbourne Hospital as well. Women on the line. I was thinking now turning to volunteerism um, because we've seen proliferation of people voluntarily supporting their communities through hardship in this current pandemic and I understand you have written a paper recently regarding volunteering. Um, and I've read you've mentioned the altruism of suburban women's groups. Could you tell listeners about, yeah, that altruism and voluntary, the volunteer activities that were going on? So the Red Cross aided the um, equipment and, and staffing of emergency hospitals. Emergency hospitals, as I mentioned, about 32 of them, set up around uh, the city, were set up in places like the Footscray Technical College, uh, Williamstown Naval Depot, and in schools like Brunswick, Caulfield, Armadale, Port Melbourne. The schools were ideal for not ideal, but they were uh, they were lent themselves to as emergency hospitals because schools didn't return after the summer holidays, um, so the schools vacant, so they were converted into emergency hospitals. By early March, the number of case numbers began to decline, and the government or the health department or the Bureau of Health, as it was called then, decided that schools should reopen. And they 
ordered the closures of, uh, of many emergency hospitals in schools and that schools should reopen by, I think, about the third week of March, which duly occurred. But then there was a second wave, and this is what people are frightened of with the coronavirus. Mm. Um, there was a second wave and um, they didn't have the facilities to to be able to accommodate the sick people in hospital. So many, uh, there were groups that started up, suburban groups of women who started up in um, and organised themselves to help out those people who were very sick in their homes. And one group was established in Yarraville and they created um, SO. Um, SOS signs, which they distributed to every second house, and they were people in these houses were supposed to put these SOS signs in their window if they needed help. They set up a sort of a depot and a tent in one of the reserves where uh, makeshift kitchen was set up and they made soup, and there were also um, a makeshift laundry coppers set up where they would do. Um, uh, undertake laundry and they divided up this south ward in Yarraville and, a, and, a, and uh, put one person in charge of each district and they would then organise patrols of the streets and making sure that everyone was was cared for and looked after. That wasn't an isolated case but there are other cases of volunteering um, like rabbit shooting parties at Wampaggy, um, the local businesses would um, donate the, the shells, uh, the cartridges, and um, uh, men would out rabbit shooting to supply the hospital with food because the hospital large so much. People also drove Melbourne District Nursing Society nurses to their um, patients numbers had jumped from a had trebled from about a thousand to three thousand and they were finding it very difficult to to um to deal with the the increased numbers so they drivers would take them to the to their patients so that they wouldn't be the time wasted in in travel there are also individual cases of altruism like the uh, north melbourne woman who took in her next-door neighbour's five children after the um, parents were hospitalised in the uh, exhibition buildings. One was there and the other one was hospitalised in the homeopathic later um, uh, Prince Henry's Hospital. So there's plenty of altruism, but Iris, I've mm. just come across evidence, though, that um, that there were plenty of, of the opposite to people who yeah. wouldn't go to a flu house and or um, wouldn't go near it. They'd drop off food at the gate and people uh, and they all would have. I even heard of a story of a father who refused to help ambulance drivers carry his very sick son out of the house to hospital. So you know, I guess mm. there's always good and bad stories, and it wasn't um, all. Um, Perfect, uh, I suppose. Women on the line. Have anything else you'd like to conclude on? Yes, please. Um, 
it's interesting the differences between this current pandemic and the and the earlier one a, a century ago. Um, there's whilst there's been um, there's been huge um, epidemiological advances in understanding of viruses. There was no knowledge of viruses at all a uh, hundred years ago, uh, and that didn't come about until the um, the until um, uh, the electronic uh, magnet was embedded in the 1930s. They couldn't see a virus. It, they're so small. So there's been huge understandings in epidemiology. Uh, there's been uh, there's introduction of antibiotics that um, that help with with any ancillary development such as pneumonia. And there are now ventilators. But I think that the really major difference and the really good thing that has that came out of the pandemic was the centralisation of health authority. There was no central health authority in Australia um, when the pandemic arrived in 1919. The only health controls they had was quarantine controls. Um, Even at state level, it was fractured. It was divided between... um, the state government and local governments. The other thing was um, that was the international interest in in uh, health and, and formation of uh, bodies that finally led to the establishment of the WHO, and that's made a huge difference in being in uh, globally being able to report pandemics such as the coronavirus that we have now. If you're interested in getting in touch with Mary on her research, including a story you may have of the 1919 influenza pandemic, you can find her at mary.sheehan at student.unimelb.au. This program is podcasted and there at 3cr.org.au and go on to find the Women on Online page, you'll find a range of further history resources provided by Mary in the show notes. Community Radio relies on the power of community. And you're listening to Women on a Line, which is a national feminist current affairs program airing in-depth analysis for a range of women and gender non-conforming people. It's based out of 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, and we have our June station appeal. We can't run our usual radiothon as the station is still partially closed because of COVID-19. And most of us are still producing from our homes. We're asking listeners with the means to support us. If you can support us at Women on the Line, please donate online at 3cr.org.au or call up the station at 94198377 during weekdays between 1 to 5 p.m. Thanks to listening to our program and for your support of Community Controlled Community Radio. The 1918 to 1920 influenza pandemic that peaked in 1919 devastated the world and a newly formed British settler colony of Australia founded on stolen lands of First Nations peoples. At the time, Melbourne was the site of federal parliament, and it was the time of the white Australia policy. In the next part of Women on the Line, we continue on to the gendered impacts of the 1919 pandemic, as well as the impact on unemployment and resistance. We hear from independent historian Liz Crash, who also appeared on the program a month ago. I asked Liz about what striking examples she found about history repeating. I think what's what's actually really struck me the most 
Um, is the way is the, is when I say something that doesn't repeat, I kind of I think once you're studying history a bit, especially when you're looking at a you know, and it's Australia's still a settler state, right? Like it's still a capitalist economy. Some things have changed, but not that much. When things are the same, I kind of expect that. What really struck me was, um, yeah, that in 1919, what was different was that it was the left that we saw um, minimise that pandemic in a in a way that we haven't seen in the same way today. So. We have certainly seen trade unions still like um, tend to advocate for full employment rather than the right not to work or the right to unemployment benefits. But I think a major, major factor is just that we have far more capacity to do a lot of work um, and to political organising remotely now. Um, what can't be done remotely is like customer service work. Um, you know, small business retail, um, getting your hair cut. Um, and perhaps, so, but the left's priorities, a lot of those are still there. So perhaps that's why we've seen the um, virus denial far more on the right in this moment. But obviously there's limitations to kind of online organising or remote organising. It doesn't reach everybody. Um, and as there's a limit to what you can do. But I think that's something that it'll be interesting to see pan out. This is like, what kind of, what can we do remotely? What can't we do? Um, mm -hmm. What kind of attitudes will people take if, if and when this, you know, rolls on indefinitely? Um, at present, we're seeing a lot of um, women do a lot of the essential labour in terms of being overrepresented in professions like nursing to childcare. Um, and we're also seeing a rise in um, domestic violence. Did you see much of the gendered impact of the pandemic in 1919 in your research? Yeah. So, this, all right, so some interesting context for that kind of thing is generally um, what you see in a lot of viruses, not all but most, is that men tend to die um, in higher numbers than women. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. So one is that um, basically men are terrible at going to the doctor. Um, they won't do it. Um, but also, like, um, just men in general have higher death rates of all causes. Um, there's some speculation that some of that might be to do with... Um, uh, some of some uh, there might be some biological reasons to do with hormone levels, estrogen, whatever. It's unclear. There's been some similar speculation today. Um, I would say that um, in the case of the 1919 pandemic in particular, um, a major factor there, of course, was that men were getting much more exposed to infection um, because the primary site of infection was the battlefield. Um, but also. Um, men were more likely to be working outside the home. Of course, many women were also working outside the home. Men were a bit more likely to be working outside the home. Um, and if they were working outside the home, it was a bit more likely to be in a factory environment rather than in a home. So you do see a bit more of a male fatality rate. Um, a flip side of that was that you similar to women taking on men and males 
jobs um, during war. You saw a lot of um, yeah, women taking on men's jobs because of the pandemic or having like an expanded professional role in 1919. So the 1919 pandemic um, was a major factor in the rise in status in the profession of nursing. Um, a lot of women got paid employment as nurses. Um, so it was a big part of the professionalization of nursing. At the same time, there was also a lot of pressure for women to do unpaid nursing, like community help, domestic work. Um, in Footscray in like 1919, the local council like organizes a meeting where they base of predominantly men, so like um, local priests and you know captains of industry and councillors and so forth, where they're like, what are we going to do about the fact that in a lot of houses, um, the main homemaker is ill um, so or in hospital. What are we going to do about the fact that the women who are doing all the cooking and all the cleaning are sick? Um, and what they decided to do about it was that they were going to um, enlist women who weren't doing anything to do that kind of volunteer labour. Um, and that kind of volunteer labour was really important, but it was also something that men definitely decided that women needed to do um, and that there was a lot of pressure to do. And they were like, and it would it involved going into, you know, houses where there was illness. So there's this reassurance that the health officer puts out, which is like, you know, you don't have to do any nursing. There's no threat of infection, which is all right, like you definitely don't have to be a nurse to get infected. Women on the line. I think in 2020, we are not going to see, we're not going to see any of those kind of swings and roundabouts, like some positive, some negative aspects for gender. It's just pretty much going to be all bad. Um, and the reason for that is that... Um, there's, not, there's already a lot of healthcare workers. Um, that's not a sector that's waiting to develop, like professional nursing. Um, the industries that have primarily been impacted are highly feminised industries. So retail, um, teaching, customer service, sex work, um, like all of those kind of things are the industries in which there's been the most loss of employment and the arts, of course. Um, in terms of like domestic violence, you just, there's just not a lot of statistics about that from 1919. Um, you see occasional reporting about it. Like it was definitely very common, but people weren't really under lockdown in the same way in 1919. So there wasn't that kind of, aspect to it like they just weren't that strict influenza restrictions you were pretty much fine to get out of the house and do whatever you wanted as long as you weren't organizing in a large group um i would say that probably economic factors would have been a bigger driver of domestic violence in 1919 but yeah in many ways the position of women not in all ways but the position of women as it was impacted by the pandemic was better in 1919 than it is today 2020 women um, have a lot more to lose from it. I'm wondering if you could speak to unemployment resistance in 1919 because it wasn't really, even in a social security system moment, is very exclusionary to a lot of people, including non-citizens. It wasn't there. So could you speak to what you found around unemployment? Unemployment in 1919 is, yeah, 
It's a bit of a it's a bit of a weird one. So there was no unemployment social security of any kind. Um, there was ad hoc like assistance, usually from local councils, but there was no unemployment benefit. Um, so, and there wasn't. It wasn't really um, mass unemployment until like quite a bit later. What you had more of was kind of just people who were living on the edge. Um, so people who were very in working in like highly casualized labor. So there, there was um, absolutely very, very casual labor. Um, even in, that's something that surprised me actually, because um, I knew that there'd always been casual labor, but it didn't, I didn't realize how much it's always been a part of like all major industries. So this idea that casualization is like a post 90s phenomenon is, is completely false. Um, unemployment, organization and resistance, you just don't really see a lot of in 1919. Uh, you see a lot of it in like the early um, 20th century, so like 1904 to like 1908. Um, a big part of that is like just like the the kind of liberational, like the kind of libertarian communist, um, kind of anarchist kind of um, IWW trend is severely, severely weakened um, by the war. Um, so that tendency in Australian left organising was much stronger in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and also like um, to opposition to the white Australia policy, like there did used to be some of that in left organisations in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and by 1919, like that's pretty much died out. Um, so the absolute, you see the, the very, very occasional like letter to the editor being like, do we have to be so racist in the socialist periodicals? But it's rare. Um, I Obviously there was resistance like always to, from like non-white populations. There was still like a big Chinese population. There's always been a Chinese population like in Australia, like post-settlement. Um, but yeah, unemployment resistance, 1919, there wasn't like as high unemployment. Um, there wasn't like an unemployment benefit um, that was kind of a demand for people to focus around. So there wasn't really a sense of like, for example, like new start recipients that we have today, where even if you have very, very casual employment, you still are aware that you're part of the population of people who rely on the doll, um, that maybe provides some kind of unifying thing to focus on and to struggle around. You just had like a bunch of like more and less broke people. Um, it wasn't until the 30s when you had real mass, mass unemployment that you start to see unemployed organizing kick off again. But you used to have like a uh, representative of the unemployed on Trades Hall Council, like in the, during the early 20th century. That would, used to be a thing. So that's where that, the 1930s unemployed workers movement you might have heard of comes mm. from. That wasn't a new conception that you could be unemployed and be a worker because you were working class. You are listening to independent historian Liz Crash, who you can follow on Twitter at the handle asfars. Also, keep your eye out for a collaborative research with Jinghua Chen called Underfoot, which is on the secret histories of the western suburb of Melbourne, Footscray. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. 
It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne on Kulin Nation's land and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line was produced by Ripley Kavara. I'm Iris Lee. Tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.